The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today has referred to herself as a dot-com dinosaur. During the dot-com boom of the early 2000s, my guest was telling people that the internet would change our lives forever. She was proved correct, even if not everyone believed her at the time. Growing up in London, she moved into the tech sector after graduating from Oxford University and co-founded LastMinute.com, a travel and leisure website. But then she was involved in a dangerous car crash where she spent two years in hospital. Following that, she was approached by the Prime Minister at the time to improve Britain's digital literacy, part of which involved setting up gov.uk. She was made a peer in 2013 where she now sits as a crossbencher, becoming the youngest female to take that role. My guest also chairs multiple boards and importantly is the co-founder of Lucky Voice, a private karaoke company set up in 2005. My guest today is Baroness Martha Lane Fox. So Martha, thank you very much for joining the podcast today. Really appreciate you finding the time. On this podcast, we always begin by asking, was yours a happy childhood? As I mentioned, uh, you grew up in Oxford. It was a happy childhood. um, And probably as a 50-year-old woman, one that I talk about too much. I had two very loving and incredibly supportive parents, both of whom did interesting things with their lives and were kind of an amazing example to me of how to be in different ways you could live. There's nothing very conventional about either of them. And that was, I guess, very freeing as a, a young person and as a child. But most of all... And it what, was, what jobs are we talking? Well, my dad was an academic. He's kind of the world expert on Alexander the Great, but he's also the longest-serving columnist on Fleet Street. He's written the gardening column for the Financial Times for 50 years. Now I think about 52 years does it every week it's quite unbelievable but he's also going kind of always got funny side businesses going on and side hustles and he's a whole book in himself and my mum was always an entrepreneur she worked with her best friend starting businesses and um doing interesting things so I feel very lucky to have had this very stable and you know extremely in many ways privileged start in my life um, now, I'm speaking to you from Westminster, and you also attended Westminster School. Um, how did you find mm-hmm. it? Ultimately, it's a school where I think growing up in London, as someone who went to school in the countryside, you can sometimes have to grow up a bit faster, mm. or you see a lot more at a younger age. Yes, both things are definitely true. I mean, there were boys, that was exciting, because I'd been in a school previously where there weren't. But I was just I was talking about this with a friend the other day. The fact that we would have our morning prayers assembly in Westminster Abbey and all of us kind of either sort of fudge trying to get there or smoke cigarettes before we went in I mean it's just insane that this was the opportunity we were being given and this ridiculous 16 year olds it sort of semi passed us by but I loved Westminster and I loved it for one main reason I think that was because we were treated like grown-ups and challenged in our brains very intensely so we were really really demanded of intellectually and I really responded that and was to that and was lucky to have had this incredible education so I I loved it even though yes I'm sure I despite being only 16 behaved like a very precocious 25 year old probably I'm not sure I'd like myself if I met myself now hopefully I would but I'm not totally convinced 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that many of us are really <laughs> like our 16-year-old selves, but perhaps for exceptions. <laughs> now, you went on to study at Oxford University. Um, at the time, were you thinking about tech or I suppose perhaps you don't think about being an entrepreneur? Did you have any early career ambitions when you took that course? Yes, no, I had a very, very uh, clear idea in my own mind of what I hoped I might try and do. I've been very affected by sort of multiple events that had been, uh, this sounds strange, but sort of in the criminal justice system. When I was young, I don't quite remember the exact triggers, but I got very affected by the writings of William Godwin, who wrote a lot about how people's circumstance was why they behaved in particular ways and that we shouldn't penalise people for, you know, being born in a particular place and not having the opportunities of others. And this always really struck me. I managed to convince school Westminster that I should be allowed to write to people in prison instead of doing sport which was quite an interesting (laughs) side hustle by me Um, so I started writing to people in prison I had this very intense experience with a couple of people that I was writing to so when I was at university what I wanted to do was go into the prison service with the entire aim and ambition of recasting it and taking it down somehow I mean again the arrogance of youth right as it was I didn't get a good enough degree to get into the fast track of the home office so that career ambition blew up so yeah that kind of a a bit of a sidestep into technology I think it's safe to say yeah I also suspect even fast track uh civil service to the home office I know and I you know I'm not as impressive as it is might not giving you that that level of power (laughs) no I think exactly right probably a merciful relief for them and me um, so, so you graduate from Oxford University and you go on um, to found Last Minute in 1998, but can you just talk us through the steps uh, briefly that get you to that point and I suppose yes. what the internet is like at that time, um, because it's now so second nature to us. Yes. Well, my first job where I did end up was in a startup consulting company. It was called Spectrum um, and it really changed my life across multiple different spheres, I think. Firstly, because it was a startup itself. I was the 10th employee and it grew very quickly while I was there, which meant that I had this kind of incredible exposure to how a company grows. And because my uh, there were two bosses, Kip and Janice, and because um, they were very generous with me and engaged a lot of us in how you run a business as much as what the work was, that was very formative. The second thing was that it was a consulting company only focused on media and telecoms. And we were looking a lot for clients at the advent of the internet. So I was lucky enough to travel all over the place from Japan to South Korea to America to see how technology was changing these industries. And you know, that was incredibly exciting because we weren't doing you know, what felt like potentially quite dry consulting projects looking at supply chains. We were doing projects about, you know, how could this TV company reimagine itself because of the advent of the internet? So that was really exciting too and then thirdly I met Brent Hoberman who was my co-founder at lastminute.com and who lastminute.com he was the you know the idea of lastminute.com came from him so really from many angles it was extremely important three or four years that I spent at Spectrum and that was where we he conceived of lastminute.com and uh, we embarked on the journey together. Forgive the slightly basic question here, but having studied, and perhaps I'm asked as a, as a philosophy graduate, um, but having studied ancient and modern history, um, what skills, I think lots of people think moving into, you know, tech industry yeah. even now requires all these technical skills. Yes. Um, what level did you need to have for this? Was it more kind of the ideas and then speaking to people and bringing things together? Yeah, I mean, we were, I knew nothing about 
technology technology. I mean, I had some strategic ideas about how technology was being used and obviously a very, very sharp focus on our own product and what it was that people would want to use our website for. But in terms of the actual coding, that was not my skill at all. And um, I used to keep a book of Java programming language on my desk just to try and scare our tech team into thinking I might know what they were talking about. But fundamentally, I kind of really reject this notion that you have to be a technology person to do technology. I mean, that's kind of absurd anyway, 25 years later, isn't it? Because everything is now a technology-based business and has digital elements. So, um, But having said that, I think it's phenomenally useful to be able to talk tech if you can. And that's really, to me, a starting point is just asking questions. And the thing that I took most from my university degree was this... Um, the importance of trying to find themes across disparate ideas and history. You know, I, I studied ancient Greek democracy and I studied Indian democracy in the 1930s and trying to find the commonality of um, idea and, and how to ask questions about different bits of time is a fundamental skill in everything, I think. So partly that I think I took mainly from what I studied into what we were doing. But as you'll appreciate, because you've talked to many of them, I'm sure. You know, entrepreneurship is relative chaos, I would say, most of the time. And you're axing across so many different angles all at the same time, trying to find people that will work for you, trying to inspire them, trying to build something that you're releasing on the world that you hope people will buy, trying to work with suppliers. And, and you know, we knew nothing about the travel industry. Nobody really knew anything about the internet. So we were all learning about that. And we were constantly just in sales mode to everybody so I think if I had one skill at that moment in time it was an ability to paint a picture tell a story and bring suppliers employees customers the press everybody on a journey with us um yeah on the subject as you say of talking to entrepreneurs we had Justine Roberts on the podcast oh, about yes. a few months ago and it was quite interesting hearing her talking about at the time you know you're trying to explain to people that this is a future and not everyone is quite convinced it's, it's coming in that way did you have much of that when when you're saying you know everyone's going to be on the internet more and more you know? I mean that was our main uh, challenge right no one thought lastminute.com would be successful that wasn't even a question in people's minds no investors thought it would be successful our own parents didn't think it would be successful our friends all thought we were nuts so the battle we were fighting was just to show that we thought that internet retail that people would actually put their credit cards into the internet was something that was going to happen and that was you know, those were the, the conversations we were having they were the conversations we were having with hotel chains that we were trying to get hotel rooms to sell off airlines that were trying to get airline tickets to sell off you know and staff people that came to work for us were kind of very skeptical that this was going to be an area that was going to grow and that people were going to actually trust us to send them products you know it was it was really a big leap it seems nuts now doesn't it to think that but in the late 90s it was far from clear that e-commerce was going to be the thing that drive the next phase of the web after what had where it had started which was you know um, information sharing I guess and that sort of much more basic uh, searching for products and services. So what point does it come together? <laughs> well, I think yeah I think Brent and I might have different tellings of this I remember most of my lifetime at lastminute.com, which was only eight or nine years, but felt like 80 or 90 because it was such an intense experience. And we went through so many cycles of a normal business in such quick succession. I remember it, as, as I said, as basically chaos. And, you know, we did work incredibly hard. We did grow very quickly, but it was always, I felt, quite out of control and didn't really feel like I had a grip of what was going on necessarily. You know, again, I was... 25 to 31, you know, 24, 5, 6, 7, 8, and there's a young time to feel confident of much coming together, right? Although 
from the outside, you could say there were moments of real clarity. So the first time that somebody bought something on our site, even though it was a friend of mine, that did feel momentous because they actually managed to put their credit card details into the website. It didn't collapse. We did actually manage to send them a product in the post, you know, an airline ticket or whatever it was. So that did feel momentous. And then I think secondarily, although it was terrifying when we took the company public just before the dot-com crash happened, we did have a kind of week of thinking, wow, we did achieve that. And although it was intense and although we were exhausted, that did feel as though, wow, that was a, a real moment in time. So when do you decide the, I suppose with a big venture like that, as you say, it feels like, you know, decades and decades of time being put into it. Um, and then did you have an itch to try and do something new? Was it just, at what point do you say, actually, I want to do new projects, really? I think I knew from about a year before I left that I was beginning to feel like I'd run out of steam with being able to contribute as much as I wanted to. And also, you know, I'm so young. I didn't want lastminute.com to be the defining thing of my whole entire life. And I wanted to, you know, explore other things, try other jobs. You know, Brent is a dear friend and I loved working with him. But at the same time, you want to see if you can do different things in a different dynamic, I guess. So probably about a year before I left, I started to think about moving on. Um, And, uh, you know, felt unbelievably lucky to have had that experience but knew that I didn't want as I say it to be always MarthaLastMinute.com and that to be the thing that was even despite my pink hair I didn't want it always to be the thing that defined me. So forgive me if I'm skipping any important part here because then obviously there's a point when you finish there and there there's lots of talk that you could be uh, taking on a, a big role at Selfridges mm-hmm. and then as I mentioned in the introduction you are in a car crash. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could just talk us through the timing and, and what happened there mm-hmm. I mean I was going to go and work at Selfridges that that's right um didn't ever happen because of the, of the car accident and I was taking a few months off because of you know working for nine years at a more intense pace than I think most people work across a lifetime and I um just was going to have a mini break and I met my now and uh, constant partner Chris Colbarns and we were going away on holiday and had this catastrophic car accident and my life completely and irrevocably changed over that period of time. So that was early 2004, May 2004, uh, just a few weeks before I was meant to be starting a new role. And, you know, I was in hospital, as you said, for two years, but, you know, my life is permeated with hospital. I spent a lot of last year in hospital again. So it's impossible to describe how profound a shift that was in such a permanent one. It's it's not something that really ever ends. And I had to rethink everything, how I am, how I work, how I move, how I survive all of the things without sounding melodramatic. Yeah, and in terms of the injuries you had at the time to this day, was there a point when you thought, you know, actually, am I going to be able to you know, live in my own, own home and things like that? Or did you always... I, I wonder how you tell yourself what you tell yourself to kind of get through the week months when you and also when you've obviously just had such a huge career moment which feels like you're poised to take and then it doesn't come together yeah I mean I guess I was I was less focused on the future career than I was feeling you know I had had this incredible experience in the past so that felt less kind of hectic I I I don't I don't think I thought very far ahead to be honest, I think when you're in that much extremis, you're thinking about getting to the end of the day or sometimes even just the end of the next hour. 
Um, and I think that that maybe is a skill that I have developed or maybe it was there, I'm not sure, before, which is in a capacity to break things down into very small manageable chunks. And sometimes that can just literally be breathing through the next five minutes and thinking, can I get through this piece of pain or this piece of fear or whatever it is? Um, and I, you know, there are certain moments through that, the hell of that two years where I can remember just thinking, just get through the next minute, whether that was the first time I had to stand up and the unimaginable intensity of that and pain and all the things that come with it or the you know the first time I was taken off various machines or anyway various different things so I think those that is what you do you break it down into tiny chunks of time and that can be five minutes and then you can extend a little bit further so I really can't remember thinking very far ahead I remember thinking I have to get home at some point but you break it down into tiny chunks of time in order to be able to do that or, or you just can't survive I think no, com- completely. That makes a lot of sense. And then you eventually get to the point when you do make it home. Mm-hmm. Although it's somewhat tragically, because I bought this amazing flat on the with the spores of lastminute.com, you know, the immense luck that I'd had with that company. And I like had, I remember so clearly because I'd bought this flat and it was beautiful. And I'd also bought this wonderful new pair of high heeled lace up shoes, which were just beautiful. And they were so beautiful. I thought I'm going to put them on the mantelpiece of the flat. They were black and white. And I left them there and then I went on holiday and had the crash. And when I came back so many months later, the shoes were still on the mantelpiece, but they'd gone yellow. And I remember thinking, oh, God, this is a bit like a kind of terrible metaphor for what's happened to me, sort of slightly withered and aged. Anyway, <laughs> I really, that was such a strong image of coming back in the van thinking, oh, God. Yeah, and uh, having to recalibrate. Exactly. So you're adjusting, I suppose, in a way, and, you know, to the injuries. You say that your life has never been the same since. At that point, when do you start to think I have the capacity to also be thinking about my career or was it just natural in the sense? Yeah, and I'm not sure I ever really stopped. I mean, of course, I wasn't thinking about it when I was battling for my life and various things. But, you know, I had had the idea for this crazy karaoke business, Lucky Voice, just before um, sort of at the end, the tail ends of lastminute.com. And I'd talked to a friend about starting it with them and I'd said that if I was lucky enough to get some money out of lastminute.com, I'd put some money into starting it. So actually that was kind of in train before the accident and through my hospitalisation, guy Nick Thistleton, who did co-found the business with me, he would bring, you know, models of how we thought the bar might look, he would keep me engaged, he would have these meetings where I'd make absolutely no sense at all because I was completely high out of my head and morphine. And he'd kind of humour me by showing me some, you know, ideas that they had about the design and stuff. So that was happening and kind of, I'm all, I'm someone that... You know, engaging in work doesn't make me feel awful. It makes me feel better. I mean, I think like many people, feeling purposeful helps often, doesn't it? Um, so I think I'd never really thought that I wouldn't be working. And it just took me some time to, to work out what that might look like and what my new working life would, would be like as opposed to the one I'd imagined, I think. Um, where did you get the idea for Lucky Voice? You said you had this um, mad idea. I personally have frequented Lucky Voice many times. I mean, I would love to say I'd come up with the idea of private room karaoke, but I think that would be somewhat disparaging of the entire Japanese culture. Well, I, was, I was going so, to say, because I've gone to Japan a lot, and yes. um, I mean, it's fascinating in the sense, obviously in the UK, when you go to the private karaoke, we've felt like Lucky Voice was the first one I'd ever gone to, at least. It's very much, um, people have a few drinks, and then you go yes. to Tokyo, and... A, there's so many places that do private booth karaoke. It's a huge business. Yeah. But you go there and it's just someone having, yes. some, you know, breaded chicken with a like a soft drink singing. Exactly. No, the, and actually, the first time I ever went to karaoke was when I was working in South Korea for the 
consulting company I mentioned earlier in my job. And I was the only woman in the team, obviously. And well, not obviously, I was. And we went out to do karaoke at the end of the project. And it was absolutely horrific. I mean, horrific. So the boss of the project started the singing and then the microphone was like passed down the chain of people, obviously lastly to me because I was the diddly squat shit person at the bottom of the queue. Everyone got insanely drunk. So that weirdly did not give me PTSD permanently about karaoke, but I loved it when I went back to Japan and I went with friends and some other friends of mine said, you know, this really is a good idea. So it was kind of team effort of group friend think that this would be a fun thing to start. And they were right. (laughs) You know, it is. It's a phenomenally happy experience. I really don't know anybody that goes to Lucky Voice and comes out grumpy. Now... We, speak, we spoke in the introduction about, obviously, the fact you remember the House of Laws. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Gordon Brown, I think, was the first to get in touch with a special job for you. Can you can you talk us through? Yeah, I was actually in the Lucky Voice office when they said there's a call from number 10 when I answered my mobile, and I thought it was one of my friends winding me up because it was not, you know, like everybody been wheeled in and out a bit when I'd been had some success with lastminute.com, but I didn't really know um, the Browns very well and didn't think I was in the offing to get some kind of crazy role in government so I was a bit surprised but I liked Gordon Brown and I respected him and he asked me if I'd be interested in thinking about how to help the millions of people in the UK who didn't have access to the internet get access and I said yes so then I really again it was a really pivotal thing for me because I hadn't properly engaged with the scale of I guess digital poverty in all of its senses in the UK and you know it was bad in 2009 and it's still bad now and so I did work for him and I carried on work for Cameron as well and sort of morphed it into not just um, looking at the digital divide and gap, but also how government could help be part of the solution by doing better government services online for people and help, you know, not create such a paucity of bad sorry, experience for people who rely a lot on government services. And that was how we created Government Digital Service and ultimately gov.uk. So it was a, a really mammoth piece of work and mammoth undertaking to try and help with all of this stuff and as you know again because you've talked to many people who've worked around government and in government you know sometimes government can just change the dynamic of something with such an incredible ease and you feel like wow the levers are extraordinary which is why it was such a phenomenal thing to be involved in I loved it although it was hard and getting gov.uk launched was probably the most entrepreneurial thing I've ever had to do because you have to make a sales pitch we were talking about sales pitch at lastminute.com that was one thing but selling to the civil service and to the political class about the importance of investing in the internet taking digital government seriously taking the digital capacity of the UK seriously beyond just talking about startups was a, a big undertaking but I really enjoyed yeah, it I can't imagine doing my job as a political journalist now about gov.uk existing (laughs) I'm sure you could but it's become such a staple of digital daily routine and they were amazing team you know Mike Bracken who came in to run it and the team that he built were were phenomenal they really did put fire underneath the belly of this project and it did change the landscape and not just here but it's been copied all over the world as well and I'm so proud of having been a small part of that I'm going to reveal something which is a bit self-aggrandizing but it's definitely one of my proudest that's things. what this podcast is oh, for no I don't I don't I mean I'm, I'm sure I'm a massive shelf but I don't naturally like it but one of the things I'm most proud of is if you go to the source code on gov.uk which means you can do a special tech thing to it's not complicated to look at what the actual code is it says thank you Martha in the code on the homepage. 
So I feel a bit, that's like having a blue plaque on the internet. It's nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then the, the digital version. And then I, sw- I suppose just now, where do you think the UK is on digital literacy compared to others? Do you think we, we still lead in it? Or I worry that some of the things that are less headline grabbing don't get the attention. You know, we do have a massive deficit in digital infrastructure and we do have a massive deficit in digital skills and it feeds into why our productivity is so bad you know if I look at this from the kind of British Chambers of Commerce perspective who have this incredible richness of 80,000 businesses members and massive data that they do as you know every quarter you know digital stuff comes up often it comes up around skills it comes up about that you're having ability to connect just basically as a, as a small business living in certain bits of the country and structure being so bad. So it still is a, as a priority we need to make sure we invest in, don't just talk about. Um, now, in 2013, uh, you became a crossbench peer. House of Lords mm-hmm. is very much um, in the news these days. <laughs> how, yep. how have you found yourself being a peer? Did you ever expect to be one? I mean, I think the stereotype is often, you know, lots of older figures and you you were very young when you joined was it different than you expected well I applied right I applied to be a crossbencher I applied to be one of the people's peers that Tony Blair created you fill in an application form you have an interview personally think that's how everybody should get into the House of Lords you could apply to be even a political peer I don't, it's not a it's a party not a party political point I think there should be a bar of some kind I think a couple of things surprised me I, I you know I knew of course I had my eyes open about the the nature of the institution, but I think I was marginally surprised that it still felt quite as old-fashioned as it did when I joined. I think it's different now, 10 years on. There are many, many more young people. You know, wh- how, whether you agree or not with the process of people coming in there, there have been some age-appropriate, <laughs> I would say, appointments where there does feel like the bulk of people are a bit younger than they were a decade ago, and that's good. I think that my expectation around people's understanding of technology and digital was probably about right. Uh, when I first joined, I think a lot of people thought I was there to fix the Wi-Fi, which mercifully I was not, but I did get quite a lot of questions about that. But I think the thing people underestimate about the Lords is just how hardworking a lot of the people there are. Not everybody, and there needs to be some trimming in my opinion. And I myself, you know, in full in full transparency, I've had a year where I've hardly been there at all because I've had a very tough physically challenging year and I've been in hospital a lot and it's not been an environment I've found easy to, to work in. So I haven't been engaged as much as I would have normally been in the last year. So that aside, you know, I do think there are some remarkable people who do an extraordinary job and uh, I've learned a massive amount from them. I mean, to give a specific example, I'm sure you know again well, Katie, but Molly Meacher, who I shared my office with, but I haven't seen her for a while again because of not being well, She's an older woman who works phenomenally hard across a massive range of issues from you know, marijuana for medical, helping people in medical examples to dignity in dying. And you know, Molly, I always hold out as an extraordinary example of somebody who gets stuff done and works incredibly hard on behalf of people as a member of the Lords. Is it for, just a final thing on the Lords? I mean, it's interesting your point about, obviously, as a crossbench peer, how, how, how you see it and, and the problems of the political appointees. There are calls, some are saying, you need that because it's unelected. Yes. Um, is it frustrating to see some of the headlines these days? I mean, there's once again stories about Boris Johnson, who he plans to put in the House of Lords. And it does add to this narrative, which is basically quite, uh, you know, it's a very popular policy with the public when you poll it. Yeah. Um, so this narrative of, you know, that, uh, you know, House of Lords are just full of self-serving individuals. Yeah. Um, does that grow frustrating for you? I mean, I I don't pay too much attention to that. I mean, I think it matters when you get the outlying cases of people who behave badly, and that should be instant (laughs) expulsion, in my opinion. I think we're sometimes a bit slow to to reimagine things. But generally, 
you know, I think you do the work and that shows and speaks for itself. I don't think people realise the amount of amendments to legislation that the Lords work on and how legislation gets improved through the the intensity of uh, scrutiny by the Lords. And that's the stuff that matters. And I think, you know, it doesn't matter what headlines are being written, that keeps doing the good work and that will make sure that the right things happen in the Lords. That's what I kind of believe. You were on the board for Twitter. I was. Before Elon Musk took over. I wonder, what what do you think of uh, how, how Twitter looks at the moment in the sense that lots of people are quite critical of it? Very, I mean, it's incredibly hard, I think, to be dispassionate about it when you had the extraordinary experience that we had as board directors. You know, I, I was chair of the Nomination and Governance Committee. I was chair of the Compensation Committee. I was on the Transaction Committee. I mean, I really was at the heart of some of this stuff. And so on many levels, we were just very clear that as directors of the company, we had a fiduciary duty about this sale. And that was, I think, separate from sometimes the emotion that we felt about the company, which I loved, the people which I really like, who I really like working with, and what I felt about its role in, in the world. You know, I think Twitter's importance can be overstated, but then you think about how much it means to so many groups who just think about black Twitter or you think about some of the ways that campaigning groups get their voice heard or even how it's used, you know, by you journalists and, and as we know, most political figures in the world. So I'm trying to separate all of that from your specific uh, director duties. And I think, you know, Elon has done what you would have imagined he would do, which is dramatically change the cost base. And, you know, everyone's oh, about that. But you know, probably this was what was going to have to happen from many angles anyway. And it might have, you know, might be what many people are facing in tech businesses uh, it's not just peculiar to Twitter. And I think the jury's still out. It's still way too early to tell. I really do. I think let's look in another year and see how the platform looks and feels. And just on that, just picking up on what you said, said there, which is it might be what lots of other tech companies have to do. I mean, I just think that the macro climate has been very different to, to the COVID times for tech companies. You know, revenues have, have been less uh, spectacular and companies that plump themselves up quite a lot and hired a lot of extra people have had to reimagine themselves and their cost structure over the next for the next period of time. So I think how Elon has approached the cost base, you know, I'm not talking about how he's done it, which has been brutal, but whether he can make something work on a, on a leaner cost base, I think a lot of tech companies have watched to see how that, how that goes. Given we are with a tech guru... <laughs> define guru <laughs> no one ever can <laughs> what apps do you use every day oh that's a good question well at the minute duolingo because i'm obsessively trying to relearn my french i realize my husband's learned. obsessed with this i'm not sure if i'm actually learning french or just playing a game with denise who keeps trying to beat me in the league um so i use duolingo every day i still use twitter every day i use um a podcast apps i'm obsessive podcast listener so whether it's entailed or others i use news apps so i i love I actually love the tortoise app. Uh, I've got my own tortoise and I love the tortoise app. And um, weather. Everyone in my family thinks I'm insane because I'm obsessed with weather. So I've got about eight different weather apps. Yeah, yeah this is actually our first Rumour Balls episode in which there's been a tortoise joining us. <laughs> How old is Tuna? Tuna, was, I'm 50 only three weeks ago. So I've only had him three weeks. I've lost him now. But I think he's meant to be about four years okay, old. So he's got a long way to go. Because what's the average lifespan? About 100 years. So Tuna will outlive us both. Well, I'm, no, I'm not clear about that, Katie. I, I really think that the, some of the, without, again, becoming too Silicon Valley, some of the technology leaps around ageing are going to impact our lifestyle big time. Our lives, our lives, sorry. Our lifestyle for sure, but our lives. And I think that if you are affluent and educated, 
you are much more likely to live over 100 than you ever have in, in time. And I know this has been written about, and I'm not an expert, but I do really think we haven't had enough of these conversations yet as a society about what's going to happen when we can all live a lot longer. Well, that is encouraging, but also suggests I should focus a bit more on my pension. Uh, yes, 100%. <laughs> so the final question on this podcast is um, one we ask everyone, which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given, which could have been in the workplace, personal... You could have taken it, you could have just told them to go away. Yes. As you can imagine, as a woman who's worked in technology since the late 90s, joined the House of Lords in 2013, has done quite a lot of work in, you know, security and digital and tech, was sat on the Joint Committee for National Security Strategy. I have found myself very, very frequently as the only woman in the room. Um, And on one occasion, a friendly, in quotation, senior man to me told me that maybe I should tone down my clothing because a few people have been commenting that it was a bit too dazzly. And uh, I found this completely hilarious because at the time I was on the board of Marks & Spencer and I made a point to only wear Marks & Spencer's clothing. So I was basically being told that Marks & Spencer's clothes were a bit too dazzly for the, the places that I was working. So that was definitely the worst voice I've ever been given. Change your clothing. I'm glad you ignored that. Okay. And with that, thank you very much for joining us today, Martha. My pleasure. It's been very nice to talk to you. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. Bye.